Hello and welcome to WexCast, the podcast series that delves into the multidisciplinary work of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. On April 5th, we were proud to host a visit from the extraordinary Carrie Mae Weems. Over her three-decade-long career, the award-winning multimedia artist has explored how images shape and separate cultures. The crowd assembled to hear her speak was actually so large, it required a last-minute venue shift. So by popular demand, this WexCast shares the audio of her artist talk. It's a magical, enthralling, and truly inspirational hour-long monologue. We'd like to thank the university partners who helped bring this very special event together. Ohio State's Humanities and Arts Discovery Theme Pilot Project, Contemporary Art and Its Publics, and the Department of Arts Living Culture Initiative and Visiting Artist Program. We have links with more info and video of some of the recent projects Weems discusses at wexarts.org blog. For now, let's hear from the artist. Warning, she does use some adult language. Hello, everyone. My name is Erica Levin. I'm an assistant professor in the History of Art Department, and it's my great pleasure and honor to introduce this afternoon's speaker, Carrie Mae Weems, one of the most celebrated and influential contemporary artists living today. Weems is known for her work in many different mediums, including photography, but also film, video, performance, and installation. Her art is exceptionally precise and conceptual, but rare in that it is also marked by wry wit, intense pathos, elegance, and a deeply felt connection to history. Selections from an early photo series entitled Family Pictures and Stories are currently on view at the Columbus Museum of Art as part of an excellent exhibition, also entitled Family Pictures, which is a show not to be missed if you haven't seen it already. This series brings together a collection of striking family portraits with an audio recording of Weems recounting stories of the lives she pictures. The work speaks, I think, to her long-standing commitment to storytelling as a practice, but also as a mode of inquiry and an object of analysis. Her work asks how stories get told and what happens when they go untold or get distorted beyond recognition in the telling. Moreover, it considers how stories take shape in the imagination, what lends them their power, and how they can become sites where power itself is made palpable. In this way, Weems raises fundamental and pressing questions about how narratives organize social life, even at the level of our most intimate relationships and how those relationships might be inhabited differently. In an interview published in the New York Times, Weems was asked how she would characterize her own work, and she replied simply and profoundly, I always think about the work ultimately dealing with the question of love. So I'll leave you with that thought. Um, Weems has been uh, the recipient of many awards, honors, and distinctions, um, including a MacArthur Fellowship in 2013. Her work has also been the subject of numerous solo exhibitions and monographs, including a traveling mid-career retrospective organized by the First Center for the Arts in Nashville, entitled Carrie Mae Weems, Three Decades of Photography and Video, which landed at the Guggenheim in 2014, and also yielded a beautiful uh, catalog published by Yale University Press. We are enormously grateful to welcome Carrie Mae Weems to the Wexner today. Um, this event would not have been possible without the support of the Ohio State University Humanities and Arts Discovery Theme Pilot Project, Contemporary Art and Its Publics, the Department of Art, Living Culture Initiative, and the Visiting Artists Program. Special thanks to Julie Defosé and the amazing staff at the Wexner for their hard work behind the scenes and for this last minute change of venue. And with that, please join me in extending a warm welcome to our esteemed guest, Carrie Mae Weems. Thank you so much for coming. 
I know that you all have many, many, many other things that you could be doing. Uh, so to spend some time with me to make this shift, to make this change is really lovely. To the Wexner Center, of course, thank you very much. And to um, my dear and amazing Anne Hamilton, who invited me, I am indebted to you. I think you of being one of the most extraordinary artists of our time. Okay, I'm gonna try to not hold you too much longer. I, um, art has saved my life. Music has saved my life. Literature has saved my life. Poetry, dance. And I often think about other artists and I spend a lot of time with other artists and I think about where we are in this time and in this space. I think about the art of appropriation, what appropriation is, how we are influenced by one another, what that influence means, how we carry that influence forward in the work that we do. How many of you are artists in one capacity or another? Let me just see a show of hands so I know I'm talking to everybody out here. With the exception of a handful, we're all artists struggling to make our work. We're all being influenced in one way or another by one another. And so I start every morning really thinking about other artists and I used to get up really, really, really early because I'm pretty intense to live with. My husband will tell you that. You know, I get up very, very early and I start that process of just looking I know that you know literature has been really important to me, that uh, film has been really important to me, the ways in which things have been made, that people like Fellini have been endlessly important to me. I think about that work, or I used to think about that work all the time. Toni Morrison, I have read on my knees. I mean, I would read like passages that were just simply so exquisite and spoke to me so profoundly that the only thing I could do was drop down on my knees and say, right, girl. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know when you like encounter that thing that completely, like it's, it's like the thing that you've always wanted to say, but you didn't have the words, you didn't have the language, you didn't have the know-how, but that thing, that thing that you've encountered, the music, the, the literature, you know, has helped you to discover and spoke for you in a way that you couldn't speak for yourself. And I think it's the reason that we always come back to work that is important to us in one way or another. I can remember the first time encountering people like Alice Waters, uh, Walker, and uh, Toni Morrison, and uh, 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 Tolstoy. Tolstoy, and, and for me, Tolstoy and uh, somebody like Morrison are deeply linked covering the same kind of emotion and the same kind of capacity. I can remember reading that work for the first time, Anna Karenina for the first time, and then I realized after I'd finished a chapter that I wasn't a horse, and I wasn't the wind, and I wasn't a spur, and I wasn't a cup, but I was just Carrie sitting in a room by myself reading. And when I realized where I had been, when I realized where this man had taken me, the only thing I could do was stand in my room and applaud, just thanking him. Now, we are all involved in one way or another in this sort of art of appropriation, this idea around notions of influence, and I think of appropriation of being something very important to really pay very strict attention to because in one way or another, again, appropriation and influence are deeply connected. Appropriation is sometimes an act of stealing, sometimes an act of exploration, sometimes an act of comparison and contrast, sometimes an act of negotiation, Sometimes a marriage of singular ideas that come together to form yet a new set of ideas. Sometimes, of course, it's simply an attack on the form itself. 
Sometimes appropriation, I think, is a kind of critical intervention into work. It can also be a kind of disruption. It can be a kind of worrying the line, for those of you who understand what I mean. Or sometimes it can be getting something that you simply wouldn't have otherwise, that you're always mining the field, mining the field, looking and mining and bringing in things that are close to you and bringing them close to you because you would not actually have them otherwise. Sometimes appropriation is simply underscoring the thing that has come before, of marking that which has come before, of knowing it and echoing what has come before, echoing the past, echoing the future in some way. Now there are some interesting things to me about the ways in which various artists have appropriated and the way in which they move amongst themselves and across themselves and across generations as well, right? Generations as well. Centuries as well. In the visual arts, it seems to me that often ideas about appropriation that we have to struggle up against these ideas, even though we know that influence and appropriation are sort of key to our making. In the visual arts, the idea of the original is really tight, right? You know that David Hammonds made that piece, that Anne Hamilton made that piece, that Lorna Simpson made that piece, right? You know, this idea that, you know, and that, and that to trespass on that, or to appropriate that is to trespass against it, right? It's really sort of an interesting idea. How many of you have been involved in one way or another in the art of appropriation? Okay, many of you, the art of appropriation. And it's always interesting what you decide to appropriate. You make very specific decisions about what you can and cannot appropriate in the act of appropriation. The sort of self-monitoring of idea and notion and possibility. These are some artists, of course, who have, you know, who swing back and forth across great centuries, sort of wonderful ways in which artists have articulated, re-articulated the past, right? The way Lorna Simpson intersects with Duchamp, right? This beautiful, beautiful sense of putting in the black body in that space that would not historically be there. This great piece that uh, um, uh, Eunice Lipton wrote beautifully about in a book called uh, Alias Olympia, which I absolutely love, and sort of my young play on that work. But I could also position it next to somebody like uh, Micheline Thomas and the kind of great work that she's done. So these ideas about the ways in which we sort of appropriate, the way in which we look at things, the way in which we sort of use the body uh, in order to get at that something that we find important, I think is really sort of essential to the ways in which we ultimately come up to make. Now the thing that's interesting to me, and I have to say this, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm trying not to take too much of your time, but I want you to, um, I'm gonna come back to this PowerPoint in just a few minutes. Steve, I'm just gonna turn that off for just one second. And now, 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 as I said to you earlier, music has been really, really important to me, right? And, uh, and so I listen, to, I listen to all kinds of music. I love all kinds of music. I bounce around all kinds of music. And um, recently, my mother, my mother, my mother who is fabulous, my mother who is fabulous, <laughs> introduced me to Aretha Franklin when I was very young. And she also introduced me to Frank Sinatra. Now, I love Frank Sinatra. And I love his voice, and I love that kind of lyricism, sort of clarity. And so I'm going to play something for you. Because in music, <clears throat> one of the things that's absolutely key in terms of like appropriation is that if you don't know the standard, right? If you, like if you, if you don't know like the A train, right? And you're a jazz musician, you can't play that, there's a problem. Right? There's a serious problem, right? And once you sort of like understand what it is and how to play A-Train, then you can do whatever you want to do with A-Train as long as you know the original, right? So that idea about being able to understand, to understand sort of like the, sort of the historical, of being able to sort of use the historical in your own making is absolutely key. Now here is something that I want you to hear. This is music. This is... Um, 
This is Frank Sinatra singing a song that I love, that I've listened to many, many times, called Gentle on My Mind. I'll only play like just a little bit for you. that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. And sort of lovely open melody. That makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. And it's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds. The ink stains that have dried upon some lines. You sort of hear every word. Beautiful, beautiful singing. That keeps you in the back roads by the rivers of my memory. That keeps you ever gentle on my mind. Fields and the clotheslines and the junkyards and the highways come between us. And some other woman crying to her mama cause she turned and I was gone. I still run in silence. Tears of joy might stain my face. Summer sun might burn me till I'm blind. But not to where I cannot see you walking on the back roads by the rivers flowing gentle on my mind. That's Frank Sinatra. It's really lovely. And I listen to it like on Saturday afternoons and I'm in my house and I cry to it. I'm very emotional. And then... This is Aretha's version of the same song. like great honor, the great honor, I don't know how this happened. Somebody paid somebody off because I was given an award along with Aretha Franklin, which I could not believe. Aretha has decided that uh, she's going to be retiring. This is her last year singing in public. But she's made this decision that before she leaves the stage, She's decided that she wants to sing the songs that other women, contemporary women artists, from Alicia Keys to Adele, she's decided that she wants to interpret their songs and give them back to them as a gift. So this is what Aretha did to Adele's Rolling in the Deep. Now, I love Adele, but you gotta see this to know what I'm talking about. We love Adele.
understand what I'm saying? When you know what you're committed to, when you know what you're committed to, when you know what you're committed to and you know how to make something your own, regardless of where it came from, who made it before, right? When you can make it your own by adding your voice to it, your passion, your understanding, your vision, and your commitment to it, everything in the world belongs to you to use and to use and to bend and to manipulate and to make all of the work that you can possibly make out of it. And so when I go to somebody like Aretha, not only am I going to her or, or any of the other many, many, many uh, artists that I go to, uh, when I go to them, I'm really going to them for a deep, 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 deep sense of, um, of inspiration and idea and emotional, emotional possibility as well. And they've been very, very important to me. Music has been the anchor, I think, of my life, and it has helped me to address some, I think, of the more complicated questions and the complicated issues uh, that evolve around my life and the making uh, in my life. So now I thought that I would, I would do, I'm going to show, share with you a, a few more images of, of things, some of my own work and some of the stuff that I've been working on over the last couple of years. You have to excuse the, the way I'm moving through this. Um, so, you know, so we know that um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in our, in our contemporary society. You know, that, that, that we would move, you know, from, from, from Obama to Trump is really an extraordinary, an extraordinary contrast in, 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 in every conceivable way. And a part of this, I think, that, you know, we're really sort of up against what we're really facing is the changing demographics in this country. And in a number of ways, we're going to have to deal with this massive change in demographics in this country that's coming and that we will expect to arrive in just another few years, shifting from primarily a, a white nation to a brown nation for the most part. And there's something that's quaking in the society that is in relationship to that. One of those things, and one of the ways that we can sort of monitor that is through pop culture. Who saw Black Panther? Everybody yeah, saw Black Panther. So, you know, so a couple of years ago, you know, I started sort of really, I've been thinking about these ideas for a very long time. I've been thinking about popular culture for a very long time. Of course, for a very long time, there was nobody that looked like me that was on any television show. Occasionally, maybe we might see something, you know, on Cosby, or we would see, you know, Julia, we would see, you know, you know uh, Uhuru on uh, uh, Star, Star Trek. But rarely did we see sort of uh, black women in any sort of role, black men for that matter, brown people for the most part. And then there was, you know, this sort of this certain shift. And I've been, you know, I look at TV, I love TV, and I started noticing these sort of shifts that were going on in television, right? You know, it's suddenly Scandal, Grey's Anatomy, Empire. These sort of films, these movies were becoming very important. And so, uh, and I think that this also has to do a great deal with our demographic shift and what primetime television is sort of setting us up for. You guys are, you know, anybody that's interested in this field now, I think, has, you know, uh, a lot of stuff to run with. I didn't. But I was looking at it and, and, being, and, and critiquing it. And so I made this piece, it's called Sites of Production, where I went to all of those, 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 uh, those, those TV studios, and film studios, to sort of look at and think about these projects from, you know, from Scandal to Empire and so forth. And so I spent a lot of time uh, running around looking at them. And there's a whole text that also goes along with the, with, with the work. And there's this sort of, you know, again, this wonderful kind of fragment that's going on. And one of the things that was also interesting about these shows, you know, like Empire or, or Scandal, or How to get, get, get Away with Murder, is that they're starting to use contemporary art. It's the back 
backdrop, you know, contemporary African-American art, particularly as the backdrop in these sets, right? Sort of reinforming, you know, a completely different in a new set, you know, and engaging a new set of audiences in the making of this material. So people like Lee Daniels and Sandra Rhimes, these are very interesting artists who are also interested in the, the possibilities of black cultural production. And so I've been going to these sets. I'll continue to go to a few more in the, in the future, sort of looking at them. And then there's a text piece that then sort of critiques the work simultaneously. And it's been a pretty interesting thing. But there's some phen phenomenal things that are going on in the, the arena of, of television that really needs to be looked at and unpacked. And I mean that, you know, in terms of like network TV as opposed to paid subscriber TV. Netflix and CBS are very different worlds. You know what I mean? Like Steve Harvey has like ascended as sort of like the king of like, you know, of like, you know, daytime TV, nighttime TV. He's not even funny. <laughs> you know? So it's an interesting, it's a very, very interesting moment. And I think it really does really sort of speak very profoundly to the shift where Hollywood is finally saying, well, shit, there's some money to be made here that we never really thought was possible, right? They never thought that a black movie would be of interest to anybody else in the world, with the, you know, with the exception of African Americans. That something like, you know, Black Panther has been sort of successful is extraordinary. Every studio in, in the world is trying to figure out how to jump on that bandwagon contemporarily, right? So some interesting things are really happening in the sort of way in which we sort of think about cultural production. And in particular, in this case, African-American cultural production and American cultural production, which is changing, right? I mean, it's a really interesting and dynamic time. When I'm not working on, um, uh, on my own, own work, or I should say, you know, I work in many different ways. And another thing that I do is I have this little institute, it's called the Institute of Sound and Style, where I work with kids in my community and my neighborhood. And I've been doing this for the, like the last four or five years and sometimes I have like 20 kids and sometimes I have 10, sometimes I have two. Right now I have one who's kind of a pain in the ass. But she's there and she's wonderful and it's important, very important work. You know, and starting, you know, I started this sort of billboard campaign of really looking at my own community and thinking about how do I involve myself in the community in which I'm situated, in the community in which I live. What does that work look like? What does it need to be? And then another part of the work that I do is sort of these sort of convenings. I've been doing these convenings for a long, long time. I started, you know, like when I was a sort of a young girl, really, because I was sort of always curious and always nosy, and I wanted to know what other people were doing, what they were thinking about. And so when I gave this, you know, when I did this project at the, at the Guggenheim, the Guggenheim uh, did my exhibition. The thing that was really amazing about this was that in the history of the Guggenheim, I am the only African-American period who's ever been given a solo exhibition in that, ex in, in that institution. The only, like the only one who's been given a major solo exhibition at the Guggenheim. This is of course a huge problem. This is a huge problem. This is a huge problem. So while I was there I thought, okay, well, while I'm here, let me see what, what, can, what, what can be done, what would be interesting to do. And so I pulled together, um, um, I, I did a five-day project where I invited about 180 artists to join me over the course of about four and a half days, concentrating with three from morning until night, 10 o'clock in the morning, ending at 10 o'clock at night, slamming fabulous. You know, invited all these, uh, you know, we had concerts and uh, uh, readings and uh, uh, cr critics and art historians, and, you know, just a, you know, sort of incredible array of artists participating over the course of those, uh, over those days. And of course, the Guggenheim really um, had no idea what to expect. They didn't know at all what I was trying to do, really. But by the end of it, they had a great sense of what was possible and have gone on now to actually raise a large amount of money in relationship to that, um, to that work. I've also done another one just recently at the Park Avenue Armory, looking at um, a project uh, based on the history of violence. And in that case, I invited uh, another maybe uh, 80 artists to join me for the course of the day. And I also put together concerts as well and readings occasionally. So I mean, you know, so, so that my work, I think, is, uh, I think of it as being, uh, 
it's sort of multifaceted in a way, but it all feeds into the thing that I'm really sort of most interested in. In one way or another, yes, Erica, I'm interested in sort of notions of love, what that means to really love unconditionally, but I'm deeply interested really in sort of the questions of power, really the questions of power and how to investigate that and interrogate that from any number of positions. Kitchen table, of course, is a part of that, of looking at this relationship between men and women, women and women, women and their children, right? and partners. What is this family? How do we talk about the family? What do we learn inside families? What do we teach one another? How do we train one another? How do we participate with one another? And how do I use like the economy of means? I'm always thinking about using the economy of means to do what I do. Like I don't really like a lot of people around me to make my work. I just like making my work, you know? And uh, you know, with as few people as possible, with as, 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 you know, as little technology as possible, only that which is necessary in order to make work work. And one of the things that I've really <clears throat> learned about the process of working is that every project that you work on is already embedded in the other project that preceded it. That everything is growing out of the next thing, 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 and out of the next thing. And that a part of what you need to do then as the artist, what we do as artists, is to pay attention to what the work is telling us that it needs to be. Right? And, and if you can get out, out of the way of the work, get out of the way of the work so that the work can do the work that it needs to do, then you'll be in good shape. But for the most part, that's something that we have to learn and that we don't quite trust because we don't quite know what the work is, what it needs to be, right? And so a part of that, a part of the dilemma in the sort of, you know, the beauty, you know, and the work is really knowing when to sort of step back and allow the work, paying attention to the work and allowing the work to do what it's doing. This work, seduced by one another yet bound by certain social conventions, you framed me and I framed you, but we were both framed by modernism. And even though we knew better, we continued that time-honored tradition of the artist and his model. I like this sort of way of the, you know, sort of thinking about these ideas. Robert Cole Scott wanted me to do his official portraits for, uh, for the Venice Biennale when he represented the United States. And I knew that he didn't want a quote, portrait, you know, because he wouldn't be calling me if he really wanted a portrait, right? So this is the piece that I sort of made. And it was about really kind of dealing with these ideas of, of, of how am I implicit in what happens to me? How am I complicit? How do I sort of critique myself in relationship to my own actions? Not simply somebody else's, but my own actions in relationship to what I allow, what I participate in. How do I voice? Am I resistant? Do I voice resistance or do I acquiesce right, to traditions that have a sort of power over me? But out of this work grew another body of work. Working with Cole Scott, who asked me to come to his house to do this thing led to a whole body of work because it also sort of opened me up to my interest, my, my, my interest in painting, my interest in painting. So this, I made this text immediately then after coming back from Cole Scott's home, his studio, to do this. Standing on shaky ground, I posed myself for critical study. Um, but it wasn't clear, I was not, I was not um, Picasso, I, but it wasn't clear, I was not Manet's type, and Picasso who had a way with women only used me, and Duchamp, who I admire, never even considered me. But it could have been worse. Imagine my fate had de Kooning gotten hold of me. You know, and it's, a, it's actually a longer, a longer piece, a longer piece sort of teasing out these ideas. And then, you know, you know occasionally I'm, I'm given commissions, uh, not as much as, you know, I, I think it used to sort of happen more often than, than they do now, and I, and I like them um, because they allow me to sort of do the work that I would be doing anyway, but I can get paid. Now this was a really interesting piece, and this piece, of course, has a lot to do with ideas about appropriation. And uh, it was a really fascinating case, and I'll talk to you a little bit 
about it after we go through the piece. It was commissioned by the Getty Museum. It's an image text piece that is, of course, an appropriated piece. All of the work comes out of an historical archive of some sort, of one kind or another. You became a scientific profile, a Negroid type, an anthropological debate, and a photographic subject. You became a mammy, mama, mother, and then, yes, confidant, ha. Descending the throne, you became foot soldier and cook. You became house, yard, field, and kitchen. For your names, you took hope and humble. Black and tan, your whipped wind of change howled low, blowing smack in the middle of Ellington's orchestra. Billy heard it too and cried strange fruit tears. But your resistance was found in the food that you placed on the master's table. Born with a veil, you became root worker, juju mama, hoodoo queen, hoodoo doctor. Some said you were the spitting image of evil. You became playmate to the patriarch and its daughter. In some cases, you became an accomplice. And God bless the child who has its own as the music score here. And so, you know, I made this, I made this piece long ago now, and any number of things sort of came out of it. You became the joker's joke, and anything with what you were. And some laughed long, hard, and loud. And others said, well, the only thing a nigger can do for me is to shine my shoes. And you became boots and spades and coons. And restless after the longest winter, you marched and marched and marched. And in your sing-song prayer, you asked, well, did my Lord deliver Daniel? And so I was really thinking um, about, you know, how do you take these like, layers, these layers of history, these layers of history? Like on the one hand, we could sort of look at photographic history. We could look at American history. We could look at the history of blacks in American photography. We could look at the history of American photography as related to the black subject. I mean, you know, there were all of these ways, or just really all of these ways that you could like unpack this piece. You, you just sort of, you could decide any, any number of ways to participate within, within the piece. And the thing that was really interesting about this piece, I'll just say this very, very quickly, the thing that was very interesting about it was that um, any number of people uh, threatened to sue me about this piece. And uh, I had like great, great, great conversations with, with um, artists, with artists about the work, but I knew that I was really sort of standing on shaky ground, and, you know, and I remember like having this great argument with the, the great photographer, Robert Frank, you know, talking about the use of his image in this work, in this piece, who did not want me to use the piece, but I knew that I had a right to use the piece in the way that it was, had been made because it was used for educational purposes. So I knew that that, that, was, that was true, but we had a really, really great, great argument, a great fight that went on for hours. It's the only conversation that that I've ever had with another artist that really should have been simply recorded from beginning to end. I mean, it just went on for hours, and we were cursing each other, and uh, it was just really great. <laughs> and then, and then Harvard um, 
said that they were going to sue me for using some of the, the, the first works. And I thought, well, you know, at first I was really, really scared. And then I thought, you know, actually this is a really good idea. Because finally we'll get a chance to have like this much larger conversation. The conversation is much bigger than me about appropriation, about copyright, about the images of slaves that Harvard has in its archive, and about how those images were first made and why they needed to be critiqued and why I, right? It was like this really thing. So I said, I called them up and I said, I think it's a great idea, you should sue me. <laughs> and then they said, um, okay. All right, so, okay, we're not gonna sue you, after all. But this took months, this was not easy. Okay, we're not gonna sue you, and so, but, but anytime you sell these photographs, you have to give Harvard a percentage of whatever the sell price is. You've gotta give us 20%. So I said, oh, okay, all righty. And then Harvard bought them. <laughs> so then I really didn't know what to do. I was like, well, do I have to give you 20% or do I have to give you an extra 20% disc? I mean, I didn't know what to do. But, 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 but actually, I mean, it's really interesting because many things have happened around this work. It's been written about, it's a big book that's coming out um, in the fall, Harvard University Press, actually. A number of scholars are involved in it, I mean, right? It's really, right? so I mean, this, this whole idea, I mean, you're like, I, we could like spend like just, just the hour just talking about what has happened around this one particular work and its history of how other photographers have interacted with it, historians have interacted with it, anthropologists and lawyers, right? You know, and then there were a whole group of lawyers who were excited to be on my side because they wanted to like slap Harvard, do you know what I mean? And it didn't have anything to do with my my shit, but, but, but theirs, you know, like they wanted to, you know, like go up against like the big guys. So it's been, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a long time. Now, I'm going to show you just a few more things and then we're going to watch a, a short video piece. You know, yesterday marked the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. the 50th anniversary. And it occurred to me at some point <clears throat> about 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more, that part of, you know, the United States and its history and the way in which it is positioned, the way that, in which it's constructed and the way in which it's made, you know, the, 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 the thing that brings us to this moment, to this, to this very second, this very hour, has a great deal to do with the assassinations that happened 50 years ago, right? You know, that, you know, that, that, you know, that, you know, 50 years ago, there would be very few brown faces sitting in this room, right? Very, 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 very few. And so this history of assassinations that began with the Kennedys, I thought, was very important to sort of mark. And it brings us, of course, again, to this moment, this moment of protest, what young people are doing, how young people are doing it, the questions that are being raised now, the political questions that are being raised now, how far we've come, how much further do we have to go, all of those kinds of questions. And so I got together with a group of students a while back, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or so, to begin to look at these sort of ideas about these sort of assassinations that I wanted to use then again, sort of appropriating the images that have come before, the images that have been made by other photographers and reenact them, remake them with my own skin, my own body, my own subjects, in my own context in order to really sort of think about the construction of photographs and what those photographs actually meant for us and how we remembered them. And so we knew about the assassination of Martin and the assassination of Malcolm and Megger. Right. You know, we usually think about this in relationship to third world countries, right? Not in relationship to the United States. That this is how we are formed. That all of these murders have happened in this great land of democracy, Malcolm and Megger. J. Robert Kennedy, of course, knew that he was going to be assassinated. He was terrified, but he knew that he had to step out there. And when his brother was killed, when John was killed, the first person that he called was Hoover to say that I know that you were involved with my brother's murder. What did you do? 
I mean, this is like, this is, right? You know, these ideas about corruption and state and law that we have to negotiate, these are real. And at the highest level, at the highest level, Robert Kennedy speaking through on a cross time looks at Hoover at the FBI and says, I know that you were involved here. I know you were, right? These are very interesting, very deep things that we can also look to at this moment as well as we look at all of the sort of seeminess that happens in the sort of contemporary administration. It's just like awful. It's just nasty stuff. It's Russian investigation. This man in the White House just denigrating the country. Unbelievable, right? As you know, as these sort of, you know, last people sort of desperately try to hold on to power in the most obscene kinds of ways. So, so I've, I've been working with this like I've been working in theater, photographing things like Hamilton, going into those spaces, theater spaces again, looking at contemporary culture, trying to unpack that culture, and then using that material in order to swirl into and to move into other kinds of territory. Working not only, you know, with, you know, that sort of uh, way, but also very interested in creating sort of tiny theaters that are portable that I can move around. And I've developed a Pepper's Ghost. This is called Lonnie Lincoln and Me, sound and video. It's really a beautiful early form. Pe Pepper's Ghost are these sort of early uh, ghostly forms that, that, that you know, that, that artists figured out how to, how to make. So I didn't need to use a, a hologram. I could use a Pepper's Ghost in order to get close to some of these ideas and some of the material. The video is maybe about 30 minutes long, and it's a whole theater that's set up around, uh, uh, that, you, that, you, that one enters into. Really wonderful way of working and practicing. Notions about color have been constantly also in the work, and I'm always thinking about color, not as simply, you know, the binary, the, the black and the gray, right, you know, the black and the white, but all those sort of various shades in between. You know, how do you really play with notions of color that where, where color becomes like magical and absurd and almost kind of surrealist? And so I've been playing in that field for a very, very long time, I don't know, maybe, maybe 30 years now, making these like color things where color either rides behind something, in front of something, is layered on something, floats behind something, you know, using primary color. It's been a wonderful way of dealing in the world. I didn't know that I was in love with architecture until I started paying more attention to my photographs. My photographs actually told me that I was really interested in architecture, you know, in, in material culture, and the way things looked, the way things were made, the way things were organized, how the world was organized, and what was like sort of female space, what was female space, and what was male space. Right? You know, endemic and inscribed, layered on the architecture itself. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And so, you know, so, you know, at a certain point, you know, I started realizing that I was really interested in architecture, that I really wanted to sort of, you know, I started with like the Sea Islands and Cuba. I have like many, many projects that I'm not showing you, right? You know, just really looking at sort of like the shape of things, how architecture, you know, tells us and informs us about who belongs where, who goes to that place. And so I was invited to, to, to Rome. I, I did like the, the Rome Prize, it was fabulous. I had so much fun. You know, and I'd seen Gidget, you know, as I was a young girl, I'd seen Gidget goes to Rome. And I just thought I wanted to be like Gidget, you know, like, you know, like I wanted to have like, you know, like a really cute Italian boyfriend, you know, being on the back of a Vespa, just, you know, jetting around, sleeping with, you know, like the cute Italian boys. And that just never happened. <laughs> never happened. So I didn't go to Italy until much later. I'd been to many, many other places, and so I went there finally when I was, I don't know, maybe, maybe um, I think just before I turned 60. So it was you know, pretty much over for me at that point. All I could do was work. You know, and I worked at Gino Cinecitta, and then uh, the film studio where Fellini had made his work. I went there, it was fabulous, I loved it. I loved it, you know, I, I loved it. Making a film in Italy was really great. I worked on it for a year. 
And then, you know, in between working on, on, on my film, um, I also um, photographed Rome. I've been in really, really interested, like, in, again, the sort of the role of architecture, the role of architecture to inform, to inscribe, and the role of the state in relationship to the body, the role of the state in relationship to the body and how the body is made to feel in relationship to architecture and to the environment in which one finds themselves. And so I wanted to photograph not only sort of ancient Rome, but I made many, 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 many photographs. You know, I, would, you know, I photographed almost every day for, um, for about six months straight. But I also wanted to photograph, you know, like Mussolini's Rome and fascist Rome. What did that look like? These ideas, you know, this Mussolini's architecture and Hitler's architect work together in order to sort of develop their ideas about the role of architecture in relationship to the state and in relationship to the body and the human subject. Again, going back to these ideas about power. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. And then just as I was sort of finishing, just as I was finishing up all of this work in Rome, you know, again, where I have just maybe 35 really, really good photographs of Rome. I made this photograph. It was the last photograph that I made on May Day 2007, right? And I stood in front of this museum and it was, you know, it was like, again, sort of like the light bulb went off, right? Again, you know, that idea about getting out of the way of the works so of the work and tell you what it needs. It was like, oh, I'm standing in front of a museum. Right, you know, and so and so, I immediately went home. Right, um, packed my bag, you know, threw some, you know, panties and a toothbrush and a bag, and I just got on the road and I went to an, any number of museums uh, throughout Europe to photograph them before I left because I started thinking about the ways in which my body then could sort of stand in front of and bear witness to what was and was not inside of these spaces. Right? I mean, it was sort of like the perfect thing for somebody like me to really sort of critique, to use my own skin as a way of critiquing and confronting these sort of extraordinary places, these amazing institutions, where for the most part, there are zero representation of work by uh, brown people from any place in the world. Maybe a few, maybe someplace, but very, 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 very few, if at all. I, I thought that that was important and that this becomes even more important again in this time. Every single institution in this country that's considered knows that they have to deal with the changing demographics that are confronting this country. One way or another, right? It's sort of like the rooster has finally come home to roost, right? And so we are sort of in this sort of incredible moment. We are really uh, who we are how we are, how we think, men and women, black, brown, and everything in between, how we participate in this thing is finally up for grabs in a way that it was never, it never was before, right? But we know that these institutions have to, if they want to be viable institutions and they have to step up in a very different way, they have to step up in a way that they never imagined that they would, right? And so this is, I think, a really sort of fascinating and really interesting time. To voice, to simply be a voice for all of these ideas and how do we voice and what kind of technologies do we use? We use old technologies and new technologies and social media. I also think about, you know, social media being developed by a bunch of anti-social men for the most part. It was really true, right? I mean, you know, like Zuckerberg only like developed Facebook because he really wanted to like fuck with women that he, you know, that had not given him like any play. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's really how it came about. You know, I mean, so it's a really interesting thing that, you know, this, this sort of incredible technology, right, lies in the hands of men, for the most part, who have no sense really of what to do with it. And so again, we have like an amazing charge. We have an amazing charge. We have something that's in front of us that I think is really extraordinary. Now, over the last couple of years, I've really thought 
a great deal about what has happened to what has happened in our in our communities. I've always, of course, I've worked in one capacity or another trying to unpack what has happened in our community, what has happened to young black men in our communities in particular, in our society, in the United States. That we are deeply disliked is a given. Unfortunate <clears throat> and has extraordinary consequences for all of us. So I was given the opportunity a couple of years ago to do a piece for Spoleto. Spoleto is a festival that happens in uh, both in Carolina uh, and in Italy every few years. And I did this piece because, uh, of course, I had been thinking a lot, a great deal about what goes on with black men, how black men are theorized and how they're threatened, how their bodies are threatened, uh, how they are desecrated what it means to be a young black man. I've seen, of course, um, my brothers and my nephews and my cousins fearful for their lives, boyfriends, afraid to go out. I mean, you know, this is like really, really deep. You know, there was a report that came out just recently that Given all the circumstances, if a black man and a white man start out in the same stations, same economic conditions, same kind of family background, same similar kind of stuff, right? Middle class. The great possibility is that the white man is going to ascend and that the black man is going to descend. It's a question of power. It's always a question of power, how men engage with one another are always negotiating it around power, and they're certainly doing it in relationship to brothers. So one of the things that I've always known is that you know one of the ways in which my father felt that he could be a man and his family was to take care of it. But when you're de denied constantly that right to provide, it becomes increasingly difficult. So I did this project, it's called, um, it's called Grace Notes, Reflections for Now. And it's uh, very much about, um, very much about uh, young black men and the conditions and the situation in which we find ourselves, and not just young black men, but uh, yes, it's focused there, but it also tries to unpack in a number of ways, again, these sort of questions about power and how to do that, how to do that, how to do that in a way that brings people close to the material and not alienates them, because I think I want people to come close to the material, to know the material, to sense the material. So we've been, been producing it, um, we've pre presented it in a number of different places, uh, at the Kennedy Center most recently, at Spoleto last year or two years ago, um, and it's starting to travel around in various iterations. And it's been a, a wonderful project to work on and to think about and to sort of tease and pull apart and to ask hard questions of myself as the artist maker, um, to, to really deal with, you know, these, 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 this, 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 this conundrum that we find ourselves in. This piece that uh, I'm going to share with you, it's, it's called um, People of a Darker Hue. And uh, I sort of continue to, 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 to work on it. It's not, a, it's not fi finished, really, in a way, because I think that the work itself, the work that I have to do in the ongoing onslaught of um, killings against these young men has not stopped. I mean, it's like every day, every day there's another brother that I could add to this list. I already have like a very long running list of names. Every day I have to add somebody else to this list. And so in that way, the work has not yet been done. This is People for a Darker Hue. A woman stands in the far winter, the beginning of spring, reflecting, considering, imagining, contemplating the past and imagining the future. With one step, 
She could be in the future, in an instant, or in the past, or in the moment for now. But to get to now, to this moment, she needs to first look back over the landscape of memory. Lost in memory, the woman faces history. A history with a story that has been told a thousand times before. If you look on the horizon, first seeing now hidden are little sightings of hopes, of dreams, of memories. If you look closely through the corridors of time, even within the horror, one could see the fluttering wings of doves, wings like time batting out beats of hope. Hope was a thing missed. Thing hoped for. You could almost taste it, but it was just out of reach, just above your head. And so, according to time and place, your appearance changed, but you were always stopped always charged and always connected. And the numbers tell the story time and time again the man was rejected and the woman was denied. A man was killed. The body lay in the open, exposed and uncovered, and women wailed and men moaned. For reasons unknown, I saw him running. I saw him stop. I saw him turn with raised hands. I heard a shot. I saw him fall. numbers tell the story. He was 22. He was 36. He was 18. A brother. A father. just shot him in his arm. We're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. I will. He just shot his arm off. Told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand off. He had, you told him to get his ID, sir, his driver's license. Oh, my God. Please don't tell me he's dead. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Please don't tell me that he's gone. Please, officer, don't tell me that you just did. They were no strangers to sorrow. And time and time again, 
the man was rejected and the woman was denied. A man was killed, the body lie uncovered and exposed. Women wailed and men moaned, and even the gods turned their heads. For reasons unknown, I saw him running, I saw him stop, I saw him turn with raised hands. I heard a shot, and I saw him fall. But for reasons unknown, I rejected my own knowledge by refusing to believe that any of this was even possible. And so, the people said little, and they did even less. For reasons unknown, this violence really is not like it is in the movies. There are no fast cuts, no zooms, no pans, no close-ups, no fades. It's real, it's life. Reality happens in slow motion and in somber color. And so, really, I ask this question in this mystery of all mysteries. How do you measure a life? 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 By what means? By what measure? I saw him running. I saw him stop and I saw him turn with raised hands. But for reasons unknown, I refused to believe that any of this was possible. And so their rights were denied and the people said little and they did even less. Thank you.